Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Happy Halloween and welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery, and Rich Lenkov, who's apparently a lion today, of Downey and Lenkov. Our first guest is Evan Burnick, who's been challenging the idea of whether or not parody is protected speech. So we have the constitutional law expert at Northern Illinois University, Evan Burnick, joining the show. Professor Burnick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for that introduction, Joe. Hello, Tina and Rich. Looking forward to speaking about speech. So, Professor, the Supreme Court is potentially taking up a case this term involving a man named Anthony Novak, who made a parody Facebook account of his local police force in Parma, Ohio. He was subsequently arrested, briefly jailed, and faced criminal charges, went to trial where his lawyers argued that all of this was obviously a parody and he was acquitted at trial. Novak subsequently filed a civil suit alleging a violation of his constitutional rights. Can you explain for our audience what a parody is and tell us more about this case? So a parody is a form of speech that's not designed to convey accurate information, but to shed humorous light on a subject and often do so for critical purposes. So in this case, Anthony decides to create a Facebook page parodying Parma Police Department's page by, uh, among other things, posting the satirical slogan, we know crime. N-O, and generally containing humorous things that were designed to make light of the police department, which, would you believe it, did not appreciate his criticism. Uh, As you correctly recounted, he was found not guilty uh, during a criminal trial, but when he tried to vindicate his rights by filing a civil rights lawsuit, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals essentially refused to hold the police officers accountable for their actions violating his First and Fourth Amendment rights. Professor, the the Onion of all sources filed an amicus brief uh, in support of Novak. Tell us about that. I mean, what is an amicus brief, first of all, and why why did the Onion get involved? So the Onion is a, uh, well, here's a a couple of sentences worth from the Onion's statement of interest in its amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief, which advocates right to to shed light on particular legal issues from their perspective and to show how it impacts them and perhaps others similarly situated. The Onion is the world's leading news publication, offering highly acclaimed universally revered coverage of breaking international and local news events. Rising from its humble beginnings as a print newspaper in 1756, the Onion now enjoys a single a daily readership of 4.3 trillion and has grown into the single most powerful and influential organization in human history. Now, obviously, that's totally ridiculous. The Onion is a satirical newspaper that generates um, news stories about things that did not happen in order to shed humorous lights on things that are happening in the world. 
And by framing the amicus brief in this term, uh, these terms, the onion is is trying to make a point about parody. Basically, it's not funny if you announce that you're making a parody before you make a parody. The reader needs to get the joke by reading and realizing how ridiculous what you're reading is. And in doing so, the onion is criticizing a Sixth Circuit opinion that essentially seemed to hold that in order for a speech that is parody to claim the protection of the First Amendment, everybody agrees that parody is protected speech, um, the person making the parody has to tell readers about the joke. This is parody. Hint, hint, I am not conveying accurate factual information. That defeats the purpose of the artistic expression. It undermines the joke. It undermines the criticism. It defeats the point. So the onion is, through parody, illustrating what parody is and must be and why the Sixth Circuit got it wrong to suggest otherwise. So, Professor, um, Novak's petition calls for the Supreme Court to consider whether officials can claim qualified immunity when they arrest someone based solely on speech. Um, as you noted, you know, parody is a focal point in this. And the city of Parma claims that Novak's actions went far beyond parody. I know from personal experience, I'm an intellectual property lawyer and have actually done a lot of work in the parody space over the years. Sometimes it can be a slippery slope. Do you care to comment on the qualified immunity part as well as the slippery slope of parody? I'm glad you brought that up because qualified immunity and what it requires courts to do is really crucial to understanding what happened here. The Sixth Circuit did not determine that this was or was not protected speech, protected parody, as opposed to impersonation of the police or an official account, which everybody agrees is not protected. Instead, the Sixth Circuit said a reasonable person would not have concluded that what the Parma police officers did violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights. And it drew from Supreme Court opinions that say that in order for a right to be clearly established here, the right to engage in parity um, and to be able to recover in a civil suit against the the official who violated that right, it needs to be beyond debate that a constitutional right was at stake. Qualified immunity creates an artificial barrier to recovery for genuine constitutional injuries by simply allowing courts to say, well, it's at least debatable, the suit can't go forward. So this challenge is not only about what is and what isn't protected parodic speech. It's about what qualified immunity does to access to justice and ability to secure relief for constitutional injuries. And I hope that the court will take up the case not only to clarify what is and what isn't parity, but to scale back qualified immunity, which all too often amounts to impunity for constitutional violations. Professor, last question here on legal face-off. The Supreme Court has a really heavy docket. Uh, this morning, I was listening to some uh, live arguments on the two cases brought against the Harvard and University of North Carolina admissions policies by those who claim that they are, um, you know, too race-based. What are your thoughts on, on these cases, especially in light of the very conservative 6-3 majority currently in the court? I think it's safe to say that affirmative action in higher education is dead based on the oral arguments and the positions that conservative justices have taken on this subject for quite some time. That being said, I did file an amicus brief with the Supreme Court um, together with other historians and professors of law arguing that to the extent that 
The court claims to be committed to the original meaning of the Constitution. The 14th Amendment clearly allows race-based policies that are designed to ameliorate past and ongoing discrimination against subordinated groups. So I hope, although I do not expect that the Supreme Court uh, will not hold that affirmative action is categorically unconstitutional. Yeah, I think I, I, think I heard once report, I read one study that showed that in the states that have um, or banned the use of race in admissions policies, the amount of minority students has gone down, I mean, considerably. I think one, one school body was like a thousand per year. So um, it, it, I'd be curious to see how those in the majority, if they rule as you think they will, come up with some other solution, how to make you know schools more open and more diverse. Absolutely. Again, that's NIU University constitutional law expert and Professor Evan Burnick. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate talking with you, Tina, and also Rich. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Moving along on our spectacular legal face-off this week, the Tim Donaghy saga, the former NBA referee that was betting on games, has made its way over several mediums. But in terms of the Netflix special, there may be some critiques. We have Sean Patrick Griffin, best-selling author, criminal justice professor at the Citadel, and former Philadelphia police officer joining us to talk about those things. Sean Patrick Griffin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Sean, Tim Donahue, as Joe mentioned, is the subject of this untold documentary on Netflix. The story of a 13-year NBA referee who's caught up in a gambling scandal. You have called out the Netflix series as not containing the most truthful aspects of the story. Tell us why. Well, there are too many for our segment, uh, which is why I posted them on my website. But the short version is Donaghy on the skin on the Netflix special, of course, focuses on the fact that he was threatened. That was debunked more than a decade ago. And the producers knew that, but liked the narrative and let him run with that on air. And if people watch the documentary, they do a lot of uh, what I would call narrative-driven things. They liked getting the other people to say, oh, no, that didn't happen. So the viewer is left with, oh, we just don't really know. It's a he said, he said story. And that's just not true at all. No one was charged with extortion. There's an allegation of organized crime in the scandal. That was debunked more than a decade ago. You could go through a litany of things. And so I don't know why the producers chose the things they did. I spoke with them when they were getting their ducks in line years, you know, oh my gosh, about a year ago. And I have my opinions, but 
I don't know if it's clicks, views, ratings, or whatever, but on the most consequential things, whether it's how much Tim Donaghy made during the scandal, how the scandal began, especially how it ended, that's incredibly important. And they purposely got all of that wrong. So, Sean, explain how Donaghy influenced game outcomes and how easy it is for any official to do so in organized sports. Sure. The gamblers, uh, when they caught on to this, and the public needs to know, the only reason the gamblers started betting on these games was because they saw the betting patterns on games Donaghy was officiating. His argument is, oh, no, all referees do this. Well, the only reason the pro gamblers were betting millions of dollars only on his games is because those were the ones being affected. They argued from the beginning that he was calling technically correct calls, but calling a lot of them, meaning and I don't know if your audience knows NBA games, but, you know, illegal defense, palming the ball, things that happen all the time, but generally speaking, are not called that often. Donaghy was notorious for that way before the scandal. So if he really was doing that to influence game outcomes, to advance his bets, that would never get picked up on an audit by an NBA team, which it wasn't. This was never flagged by anybody. But for the pro gamblers shutting it down in April of 2007, this would have gone on because the NBA never picked up on it. You mentioned, uh, Sean, that you were actually interviewed by the makers of the documentary, but your uh, interview was not used. Tell us more about that and uh, what was missing that you would have contributed to the story. Sure. Well, when I was interviewed, just to be clear, I get interviewed for things like this all the time. And a lot of time it's on background. So it doesn't necessarily mean that I would be on screen. In this particular case, it was interviewed about the things that they would need to pursue, avenues of pursuit, documents that they would need from me because I, of course, have all the documents, the FBI files, the court documents, things like that. So most of it was on background. But one of the things that I would have focused on if if they had ever really gotten that, and by the way, the few times they spoke with me, it was very clear that they didn't know the story and by the way, I say that with an attitude because don't forget, they're doing this in 2021 and the scandal was in 2007. We know everything now. There's no unresolved mystery here. So I couldn't believe that they had never, they contacted me, but had never read my book. They never read Game in the Game, even though that's why they were contacting me. The one thing that I would have had them focus on was the end of the scandal. The scandal, as I mentioned a moment ago, ends when a pro gambler decides to shut the scheme down in April of 2007. Donaghy's allegation, and it's exposed in that documentary again, is that the mob made him bet on games he was officiating in the 06-07 season. Well, that's not only ridiculous, it's demonstrably false. You can do that through court documents, you can do it for FBI agents, and that's the thing that bothers me. If people watch the documentary, they have the supervisor special agent, Phil Scala, on the documentary. But they never ask him that question. So it allows the false narrative to go on, even though they had access to all the data, my files, all the court documents, and the actual FBI supervisor on the thing. And the reason that matters is because Donaghy says, oh, no, once once pro gambler Jimmy Batista went into drug rehab on March 18, 2007, I stopped because I was no, long, long, no longer under the thumb of organized crime. Well, not only is that not true, because the scandal switches from pro gambler Jimmy Batista to pro gambler Pete Ruggieri. When Ruggieri shuts the scheme down a few weeks later, Donaghy complains. And yet this is the person the public is being told was a victim in all of this. So, Sean, speaking of the connection between pro sports betting and organized crime, with the legalization now of pro sports gambling, has the influence of organized crime increased or decreased, in your opinion? That's a great question. Obviously, we can't quantify something like that, but people like me do study whether the illegal market is growing 
regardless of legalization of sports gambling. But we've, what we've learned, ironically, is a lot of people wrongly said that when sports gambling would be legalized, that that would come at the expense of the illicit market, whether it's organized crime or otherwise. I never thought that would happen because in illegal markets, California's experiences now with legalization of marijuana. The moment you tax something and regulate it, well, by definition, you're creating a black market because you've now increased the cost to the consumer of whatever product you're dealing with. Well, the illicit gambling, at least the illegal gamblers will let you bet on credit. So when you bet legally, you're, the pro sports books are not going to let you bet on credit. You're going to pay for your losses. Well, the underground sports books will let you do that. Your local person at a tap room or a pub or whatever, they'll let you bet on credit. So it has not. we now know uh, definitively that it has not come at the expense of illicit gambling, whether it's organized crime related or not. And by the way, most, most gambling has nothing to do with the mob type people that you would imagine in movies and TV who are going to break legs and stuff like that. Generally speaking, illicit gambling, they're, they're pro gamblers who could be your neighbors who literally claim it on their taxes. Last question here, Sean, on, on legal face-off is given how relatively easy it seems like someone who's motivated by money or other factors can turn the outcome of a game what has the NBA done and other leagues, for that matter, uh, to put in place safeguards to prevent another Tim Donahue from acting that way in the future? Another great question. They, they claimed after Donaghy that they are now monitoring betting lines and they, they have sophisticated algorithms that can detect odd betting line movements. One of my criticisms, if people read Game in the Game in the appendix, one of the things I have is the suggestions for the NBA. I defend them from 03 to 06. But the 0607 portion of the scandal could have been detected if they were just looking at betting lines because the betting lines on games officiated by Tim Donaghy were flying all over the place, which is why people were copying them, even though they didn't really know the nuances of this conspiracy. So they say they're doing that. We just have to trust them that that's what they're doing. Again, that's Sean Patrick Griffin. Be sure to check out his website, seanpatrickgriffin.net. Also, his book, Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. Also a podcast out there called Whistleblower in which Sean Patrick Griffin contributes a great listen as well. Sean, thank you so much for all the insight tonight. Thanks, guys. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, earlier this year, the Supreme Court sworn in Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And we have with us Nakia Crossley, energy policy leader, senior manager of public policy at Sunrun and former president of the Black Women Lawyers Association of Greater Chicago. I'd like to remind us all to keep an eye out for the National Summit of Black Women Lawyers, which comes up on March 30th. And a repeat guest of the Legal Faceoff podcast. Nakia, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Nakia, great to see you. Talk to us first about the BWLA, um, how long it's been around and what its purpose is. Ah. Um, So BWLA is the Black Women Lawyers Association of Greater Chicago, and it was founded in 1987. We're 35 years old this year, Um, and we serve as a safe haven, if you will, for Black women lawyers in the greater Chicago area. We provide continuing legal education um, opportunities as well as networking and um, career advancement opportunities for Black women lawyers. So Nakia, some of your members and you were recently in DC for the beginning of Justice Jackson's term on the Supreme Court. 
Why was that important? And what was that experience like? Oh, wow. Um, The importance of it, I think, can't actually be measured in words. Of course, we have tried to do so um, in many different ways. Um, And certainly by actions over the uh, last few months or so, um, having the first black woman on the Supreme Court of the United States in its 233 year history is certainly um, an accomplishment. And I'm just really glad to be living in such an historical um, moment. Um, The uh, event that took place in DC was spectacular. It was a great opportunity for black women lawyers all across the nation to come together and celebrate this historical event. Um, And it really stemmed from uh, an idea from an attorney, Kelly Hooper, who's based out of Atlanta. Uh, She, like many of us, um, witnessed the confirmation hearings. And she thought it was really important to kind of counteract what she and many others saw as um, just a very um, challenging, if you will, <laughs> um, set of events. And so she wanted Black women lawyers to come together to say, hey, you know, we support you, we are rooting for you, and um, best of luck on your first day. Nikia, to that point, uh, we talked earlier, I was listening to uh, Justice Jackson's, some of her um, input and questions on the big affirmative action case that's being argued right now this morning before the Supreme Court. And uh, those of us who have watched her in prior arguments have been obviously very impressed, not just with her her intellect and the articulate way in which she's comporting herself, but frankly, how bold she is in her questions. Um, You know, she has not been shy in challenging uh, many of the litigants before her and, in fact, challenging some of her colleagues on the bench. Um, You know, not to say that any Supreme Court justice got to where they are because they're necessarily shy, but it seems to lots of Supreme Court observers that she is very assertive um, and, again, not shying away from any tough arguments, tough discussions, tough questions, even in her early days on the bench. Why do you think that is so important uh, for her to assert herself that way? Well, I think that... When you're in such a seat of honor and importance, it is important to ask the tough questions and to have the audacity and the assertiveness to do so. I don't. I think um, everyone who's privileged to sit in that seat should have those qualities, and so I don't think that um, she's necessarily she should necessarily be considered different from anyone else. Um, I mean, and you add to that the just importance of this moment, the types of issues they are grappling with. I think it's um, hugely necessary um, to have those traits. McKay, you were kind enough to join us uh, a few months back in our first ever in-person legal face-off podcast before a live audience. The subject it was, was amazing. Live. It was incredible. You were amazing, <laughs> as were the, you know, incredibly uh, diverse and, and uh, impressive panel of uh, lawyers we had, or legal professionals we had on the panel. And one of the things we talked about in that panel um, was the fact that, I just have some statistics, women have been graduating from law schools in greater numbers than men for the last seven years, 
but still way behind when it comes to fair pay. In 2020, the last time this was really looked at, among associates, women in general were paid on average 91% of what their male counterparts earned. Among equity partners, the average compensation for women was only 85% of male lawyers. Women, women lawyers of color face an even more difficult battle. The latest, latest statistics for the National Association for Law Placement show a huge lack of diversity at law firms nationally, particularly when it comes to black female lawyers. Um, obviously, lots has been accomplished, but lots more needs to be done. What are some of your thoughts on you know the progress that's being made, but also how to get um, to get get to where we need to be? You know, um, I actually wrote about this earlier this year in Cranes, and um, they they did a, a really great just. Uh, outline of just what the progression has been like. I recall um, back in 2015, BWLA's uh, national summit, then we talked um, and I guess uh, provided a a call or recall, if you will, to action as it concerns this very issue. Um, it is un- inexcusable that we're still at a place where um, 1% of Black women lawyers are partners nationally. Um, And I haven't necessarily seen much progress over the last decade. Uh, I think that we we know the solutions. Um, General counsels, for example, should be uh, being intentional and making demands of its outside counsel to ensure that they have diverse representation on their matters. Um, partners, equity partners at law firms should be intentional about um, diversifying the associates that work on their matters. Um, the, what's the theme here? Intentionality. Uh, there needs to be a lot more intentionality around um, raising the profile of diversity within these institutions. I think that's the the only way. It's not, you know, anything novel. It is something that we all know, we all recognize. And we know um, from statistics now that diversity doesn't just make sense. It makes dollars. So, we, we all just need to um, just rally around the intentionality of it. So, Nakia, tell us about the recent Sisters in the Law event and about your upcoming summit. Sure. As I said, uh, Attorney Kelly Hooper was the visionary behind this um, event. It took place in Washington, D.C. Um, the Sunday night before Justice Katanji Brown Jackson started her first day of work. Uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, So we had a wonderful uh, reception Sunday evening um, of about 200 Black women lawyers and allies. Um, We had amazing remarks from uh, Chief Judge Anna Blackburn Rixby of the D.C. Court of Appeals, um, retired Chief Judge uh, Dorothy Beasley from the Georgia Court of Appeals, and the president of the National Bar Association, attorney uh, Lanita Baker, uh, to just mark the moment, the occasion, to talk about the progress that we've made and just how much further we indeed have to go. And then on uh, Monday morning, 
we all gathered in front of the Supreme Court and we took photos and then we um, had a, a great um, tour of the Supreme Court as well. It was a lovely event, um, just full of just heartwarming um, exchanges from everyone. And um, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson wrote us a very lovely handwritten note from her office um, thanking us for her support. And you have a summit coming up, don't you, in the next few months? We do. Uh, the Black Women Lawyers Association, we host a national summit of Black women lawyers every five years since 2001. Um, it takes place on March 30th through April 1st, 2023 at the Fairmont Hotel downtown. And it will contain a, a wide range of programs on a variety of different topics, um, including career strategies, board service, brand development, uh, physical and mental wellness, views from the bench, developments in con law and civil rights law, in addition to uh, many opportunities for fellowship and community engagement. And the goal is just to engage, empower, and encourage. Um, historically, we've had hundreds of Black women lawyers from all over the nation attend. And so we look forward to welcoming everyone to the Windy City in March. Again, the National Summit of Black Women Lawyers is on March 30th. That's Nakia Crossley of the Black Women Lawyers Association of Greater Chicago. You can find out more information at bwla.org. Nakia, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Time to move on to the legal grab bag segment of our Halloween episode of the Legal Faceoff podcast. We've got two great guests. Let's get to them. John Shakota of Ehrenberg and Goldgen. John, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having oh. me. Absolutely. Along with Catherine Rubino, senior editor at AboveTheLaw.com. You can also find her on Twitter at Catherine One. We'll be referencing a couple of her articles in this segment. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Happy Halloween, y'all. Happy Halloween, indeed. Tina, let's get started with one of Catherine's recent articles of Samuel Alito claiming he is the victim over the leaked decision in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case. Yeah, Joe. So last week, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito appeared at a Heritage Foundation event where he voiced a narrative that has been floating around in some circles since the Dobbs decision came down in June. 
And that narrative is that he and the other conservative justices who supported the majority opinion are the real victims of the leaked decision from May 2nd, rather than the millions of women whose rights were significantly curtailed by that decision. In fact, Justice Alito said that the leak of his draft opinion made the justices in the majority targets for assassination and that it was a grave betrayal of trust, a shock, and that it gave people a rational reason to think that they could prevent that from happening by killing one of the justices. In my humble opinion, and with all due respect to Justice Alito, what is not really discussed here is what the true source of the upset was for millions, which was the actual underlying decision and not the fact that it was leaked. I think we can all agree that the leak was upsetting to all and very inappropriate, but there really hasn't been any resolution on that front with regard to the investigation into the leak that was supposed to happen. And we all know that the outrage and upset was going to happen regardless of the leak or not. So, Catherine, let's turn this over to you. You recently wrote in Above the Law on this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I very much take a similar thought process that you do is that uh, it's it's insulting, frankly, I think that Justice Alito thinks that he's the victim here when millions of women, millions of folks with uteruses all of a sudden find their rights uh, curtailed in a really substantive way. We've heard horror stories of folks who can't get cancer treatments because they might be pregnant, can't get access to all sorts of medical procedures, can't exercise their basic rights. Um, and to sort of turn that narrative and try to pretend that he's a victim is is a common media tactic that we see. Um, but it is it is upsetting, I think, to hear from a Supreme Court justice. You know, the court is supposed to rise above the political fray. And instead, I think with this decision and the word, it's not just that they overturned Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, but also the way that they did it. That decision was very much a scorched earth. This is where we are now. Um, kind of kind of decision. And I think that every I think folks had a real reason to be upset. And I don't think it mattered that it came out in May as opposed to June. I don't think that made a, a lick of difference as to people's reaction. And if he's concerned about folks' reaction, maybe he should think about what he's writing and not when that information is released to the public, because it was always going to become public. Yeah, I mean, as if we needed another reason to dislike Alito. I mean, don't forget, Alito mocked people who disagreed with this decision only a couple months after he wrote it, right? So mm-hmm. that was like shocking in of itself. Now he's calling himself a victim. Listen, I understand where he's coming from, John. I mean, on, on the one hand, I understand the idea that given what we saw Friday, right? The, 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 the husband of the Speaker of the House was attacked in his house with a hammer, hit on the head with a hammer because of differences politically by some whack job. So I understand that in the wake of Justice Kavanaugh being threatened with assassination, um, the uh, person running for office in New York was attacked. These things are happening more frequently than others. We're seeing you know, people being pushed in subways all the time. So I understand the underlying point that we should not let our differences politically drive rhetoric and anger to this extent. But you're right, Catherine, and John, I want to get your perspective. Uh, it's incredibly obtuse and uh, very insensitive when you're taking away a right that women have enjoyed for 50 years and then you're worried about yourself. Yeah, I, you know, I, Rich, I, I concur. I think, I think obviously there was breach of trust uh, with the leak of the opinion. I mean, that was, that's troubling. But 
to now associate that with the underlying decision and how it affects so many women and families um, and to associate it with being, you know, victimized um, is concerning to me. I do agree um, that the political climate that we're in, we saw it on Friday with Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, being attacked. Um, this is a very explosive environment. Um, you have strong, very, very strong feelings on both sides of pretty much every issue. Um, and that, yes, you know, people in the Supreme Court, people in political office, judges, um, they are subject to risk. Uh, and they are subject to uh, a great deal of uh, potential um, harm that I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take an interest in to try to protect them. Uh, but to make it, you know, on a personal level of being a victim, I saw that to be a little bit uh, overbearing in my judgment. Let's get to Kanye. Pretty much no way around it. He's probably going to need some of the best lawyers to represent him these days. And another one of Catherine's articles is all over it, Tina. Yeah, so Joe, this is a story that seems to be pretty difficult to keep up with because it keeps evolving pretty quickly. Um, towards the end of last week, we all thought that the highly prestigious firm Quinn Emanuel was going to stick by Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, when other firms, as well as other organizations that he was in sponsorship deals in, were dropping like flies after he drew widespread criticism for the anti-Semitic statements he made on social media and that White Lives Matter t-shirt that he wore to Paris Fashion Week. Well, late on Friday, the news broke that Quinn Emanuel has also withdrawn from representing Kanye and will not represent him in the future. Both Quinn Emanuel, as well as the law firm Cadwallader, were among the lawyers working with Ye to end a partnership with The Gap last month. And Cadwallader said last week that it ended its relationship with him, adding that it condemns bigotry and hate speech of any kind. There have been a number of other firms that have fallen in line with that, including Stradley Roman, that's another firm that represented Ye in the, in the Gap deal. Last week, Adidas terminated its partnership with him, which many uh, people say is what officially knocked him off of the Forbes list of the world's billionaires. We thought for a while that one of Johnny Depp's lawyers at the law firm Brown Rudnick, which um, is a former LFO guest, Camille Vasquez, we thought for about 15 minutes that she was going to represent him, but they dropped him as well. Apparently, Ye has apologized for another thing that uh, was incredibly controversial, which was his false claim that George Floyd died of fentanyl rather than at the hands of police brutality. He formally apologized. Floyd's family had announced plans to file a $250 million lawsuit against him. So, Rich, I mean, he is just I mean, he's beyond being canceled at this point. I don't know what that next step on the trajectory downward is, but he's going down big time. I thought Quinn Emanuel was still I thought the news on Quinn Emanuel. I might have not seen the latest. But they, thought, they actually dropped him late on Friday. OK, because there was that. Yeah, yeah Catherine probably can comment on this. <laughs> yeah, there was the Instagram post, Catherine, that was really interesting. That was leaked. Mm -hmm. That was between. 
uh, Ye and Quinn Emanuel, where they're talking about his ability to get out of the gap contract and the Adidas contract and to the extent that that IP is protected. Apparently, they have listened to everyone else in the world and thinking that he's not a great person to represent. But I was actually on John Williams just this morning talking about this, Tina. And, and the interesting thing is, like, you know, you could represent anyone, really. There's no, you know, listen, everyone, bad or good, disagree or agree with their opinions, at some point deserve legal representation. But they're a private business. Put Emanuel, these other firms are private entities. There's no constitutional right to intellectual property representation, right? So he could hire anyone he wants. A law firm as a private entity can decide who they represent, but they've got to be conscious of not just other clients, how they react, but also how the market reacts, right? If they want to represent other Kanye's, other artists, other companies, then like we all do, they need to make an assessment of whether this is a client they want to represent. And thankfully, in my opinion, most firms have decided that he's not the right guy to represent. Catherine, what, what's the trend on this story? I mean, again, we've seen other characters in the media that have been controversial. Uh, what makes this case different that makes every big law firm, you know, drop him? I mean, I think that his anti-Semitic re- remarks um, and his unwillingness to back away from them, there were some reports and rumors that you know, particularly when it came to Brown Rudnick, that his in unwillingness to sort of make amends for the anti-Semitic rep- remarks were uh, behind it. And I think that for when you're talking about big law firms, these top 100 law firms, which we haven't heard uh, for a single major big law firm that is continuing to stick with Yay at this point, I mean, still ongoing, of course, but but as of right now, I can say that. Uh, and I think it's because they are a business, as, as you indicated, Rich, but it's not just other clients that they're answering questions from, although I think they very obviously are. But it's also the talent pool. Remember, big law firms' primary asset are other people's minds, right? It's other lawyers that are willing to come to the firm to dedicate their time, effort, and intelligence into making the firm, you know, to continue the firm's excellence and to continue their representations. And so it's not just that they're hearing from other clients or other potential clients, but they're also hearing from law students or lateral attorneys. Big law firms require a lot of people in order to continue to be successful. And they need to be on campuses at law firms, getting the next generation of legal minds to commit to working for them. And when you're a student or you're a lateral and you have lots of options in front of you, you know, the, as the best and the brightest frequently do, why are why would you look at a firm that is not a 100% against anti-Semitism. It seems like an easy call for these firms. Uh, you know, it's it's a bad business decision. And obviously, Kanye can try to hire anybody he wants, but that doesn't mean that these major law firms have to be willing to be hired. Yeah, the other, that's a great, great point. And, and John, the other interesting legal point of the Yay saga is, um, you know, you deal with contracts every day, right? At, at the end of the day, uh, a big question is, to what extent does he own the intellectual property involved with shoes, for example, sneakers, his relationship with Adidas? To what extent does Adidas own that? And I'm sure, not having been privy to the contract, none of us are, but it's very common, especially when you're dealing with talent like this, there's a morals clause in the contract, right? And undoubtedly, this anti-Semitic rant that he's been on over the last month has violated the terms of that morals clause, allowing Adidas to not only drop him, but probably retain a lot of the value of this relationship. Yeah, absolutely, Rich. First of all, 
discrimination against anyone is discrimination against everyone in my book. So uh, first of all, um, obviously what he has done, he's gone off the, the cliff, so to speak. Um, but to, to your point, there are morals clause in most of these contracts, good behavior clauses. And it does give, I haven't looked at this particular contract, but I'm very familiar with these types of contracts. And it gives the, one of the contracting parties, the non-breaching party, a right to pretty much revoke and rescind the contract based upon this morals clause. I think you're going to see more of this in the future in a lot of different contexts. I can tell you, obviously, all of us know reputational risk and issues is a huge thing in the law. It's a huge thing in any business. And I think you really have to be conscious of, you know, what type of matters, what types of clients are you willing to represent from a reputational aspect? I think that's something very important. Let's move on to our first false food advertisement of the show. We have an impasta and it's Italy's self-acclaimed number one brand of pasta, Rich. Like what you did there. I see what you did. I like it, Joe. Um, yeah, it seems like it's not a legal face-off unless we have dealt with a lawsuit involving um, alleged misrepresentation of food in some respect or another. We saw the Texas peach, right? Chili case uh, or hot sauce a little while ago. That was neither. That wasn't uh, anything to do with Texas. Texas Pete wasn't made in Texas, so uh, alleged a California litigant. Now we're dealing with a lawsuit involving Barilla Pasta. Now, it's advertised, by the way, is it pasta or pasta? How do we pronounce pasta. it? Pasta. John would know if anyone would know it would be I'd John. say pasta. Pasta. Is it, is it pasta. gravy or is it sauce? Yeah, it depends on, gravy. depends on whose house you're in and what Sunday. Are you a, are you a <laughs> I friend? I have half my family say gravy, half says sauce. <laughs> are you a friend of ours? We're a gravy family over here. <laughs> no, he's got uh, the right... The right panel for this. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect panel. Yeah. So um, this is called Italy's number one brand of pasta. But uh, instead of being from Italy, it's apparently from a company that's based in Illinois. And the uh, pasta is made in, of all places, the hotbed of Italian cuisine, Iowa. So, of course, there's a lawsuit. And, of course, they're alleging that they were uh, fooled, duped. Uh, scammed into buying this, what, $2 box of uh, spaghetti. And now that led to a class action because you know, Tina, how damaging it could be when you get home, you throw that spaghetti in the boiling water and you realize, oh my God, this isn't Italy, it's Iowa. What am I going to do? I'm psychologically tra traumatized forever. Pay me, right? Yeah, that's the way this goes. And I think on the spectrum, when we compare this to Texas, Pete, just, you know, from my experience in practicing, I think that, you know, the FTC courts, et cetera, look at slogans a little bit differently than they look at trademarks. I mean, I think we established that Texas Pete as a, as a brand has been around for like a ridiculous number of years. Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit odd to be seeing somebody litigating that brand after like it was... I think it's been around for 70, 80 years, something crazy like that. Whereas slogans are treated a little bit differently because they are often the mechanism by which um, companies try to persuade through puffery and whatnot 
um, others to buy their products. And so the question is, is this puffery or is this actually a product claim? So one person's puffery is another person's product claim, as we see through the many dozens of lawsuits that we talk about on this show. Speaking of puffery, John, I just realized that uh, my breakfast cereal isn't made by a, uh, a puffin and that, uh, that uh, you know, my, uh, my, my, my other breakfast cereal isn't made by a leprechaun. I, I'm going to sue. Do I have standing to sue these various cereal companies? I, I'm, deceptive. I'm deceived all day by my food, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Barilla is, was originated from Italy, has a facility in Italy. You know, if they would have represented, I think that it's from, you know, it's Italian origins and, and recipes. I think that's one thing. Um, we, we, and that's really what I think it is, right? It's manufactured here, but it has origins and its recipes are from Italy. So, I mean, you know, I think it, and Tina will tell you better than anybody, but I think deception in, in advertising is a big deal today. I think there's a lot of representations being made, and the question is whether it's puffery, whether it's legitimate. Um, I think this one is, is somewhat interesting. I don't believe it holds water at the end of the day. I think they lose um, because I think anyone that knows of Barilla knows of its Italian roots. And it's, you know, for generations, it's, um, you know, derived from, from Italy. So I think they have an uphill burden, but we'll see what happens. Catherine, you cover these kind of stories all the time. Where does this sort of line up in the world of interesting class actions for let's call it questionable damages. <laughs> I, I think it is kind of interesting. I think also because folks who are into health vote know that a few years ago it became very popular to look to see that you were getting pasta that was manufactured in Italy because there was supposedly a higher protein content in the wheat that is used by law in Italy as opposed to in America. And my guess is that that kind of distinction is really behind uh, or motivating part of this lawsuit because there was, there was a time when I spent plenty of time in the grocery store searching for the back to see made in Italy or imported from Italy before I purchased it. Um, you know, as, as you're chasing various crazes at different times. And I think that I think it's at least relatable to a lot of folks. You know, I I kind of always knew that Barilla, that Barilla that I get in my grocery store is not manufactured in Italy. First of all, because of the price difference. <laughs> Very clear to me that that was not actually imported from Italy. Uh, despite its its name, uh, and but I do think it's very relatable for people who may not have a background in the difference between puffery and trademarks, but spend a lot of time in the grocery store <laughs> and looking at this sort of thing. And and there's definitely a, you know a moment in time where that was the difference between Italian pasta, real Italian pasta, made in Italy pasta, and American pasta was something a lot of folks talked about. And I think that that's that makes it much more interesting for folks to talk about and to think about this lawsuit. Well, it's, it's funny because our tagline for this story, Tina, was uh, now that's Italian, which some of us re might remember as the old, you know, commercial for ragu spaghetti sauce. Yeah. Just, we talk about deception, like <laughs> now that's Italian. Like, you know, some you, you can buy this two dollar <laughs> bottle of uh, of uh, marinara at Jewel and somehow you're transformed into a, you know, chef from Milan. I mean. That was deception of anything. That's, <laughs> no, that's really Italian, that ragu sauce. But um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look around my pantry today and see who I could sue. I'm just saying. I got an idea. I got, I got a solution. Okay. Why don't we rename the town Italy, Iowa, where they make the pasta? Yeah. There, there's there a Paris, go. Texas, so then technically you're not lying. Well, listen, when you dig through your Halloween candy bag tonight, Joe, because I knew you were going out trick-or-treating right after this, like, let's think of the different lawsuits. I don't know. Big and plenty? They're neither big nor plenty. Mike and Ike? Like, what's going on there? That's for, a lawsuit for, for sure. For some reason, the police didn't uh, believe me when I told them the candy bar literally said, take five. I, yes. I don't know why I had to get put away in cuffs. Anyway, here. Rich, I, I feel like this next story, you need to take a little bit of a lead from what they're doing. All these emails and texts I'm getting at late at night, over the weekend, or all the legal face-off uh, pre-prep uh, I need to do. Uh, Magic Circle Firm Slaughter in May is putting out a new process of how exactly they want their employees. I to love work. it. I love it. I mean, first of all, the fact that there's a code for any law firm is just great. The fact that they use the word code, you know, I, <laughs> I can't get away with that in my law firm. Um, but anyway, yeah, as someone who might send an email or two at odd hours, um, I've been known to do that. So this law firm put together this code that uh, uh, is purportedly, Tina, to foster work-life balance, which is important to all of us these days. But uh, they say to their credit that it's not necessary to turn your camera on a video call between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. So they're scheduling all of them, apparently, at like 7.59, I bet. Um, additionally, the code says that you're supposed to, as an associate, check your email one, once on a Friday night. Doesn't say when, I think, right? Uh, and then twice a day, but not at all between 10 and 8. So again, lots of 9.58, 9.59 Friday emails. Now, it does say, this is the kicker. This is the best part. And this is thanks to our friend Catherine that unveiled this and, and put it on above the law. Uh, the code says, for this to work, you need to be reachable by phone. What? <laughs> the hell does that mean? <laughs> and then the code has the, um, let's say, pumpkins to go on to say, it. Uh, the firm needs to empower people to behave like normal human beings and have their own expectations of a life. But the client is still number one. And it says, quote, ultimately, the client comes first. We're a bit like a five-star hotel. We're very expensive. Clients know that if you call room service at 2 a.m. for a Sunday, you'll get one. So what the hell? What are you supposed to take away from this code? Am I answering the phone at 2 a.m.? Am I taking the Zoom later or not? Which is it? Does my life take priority or does the client? Tina, I'm as confused as ever. But as someone who, you know, expects my associates to be available at sometimes different hours, I, I like a code, I guess. Well, I talk about mixed messaging, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I could decipher a path forward from all of that and... I mean, my guess is that it was to try to temper some unreasonable expectations by partners, but I could also see that the code was needed because you would have some folks not checking email at all over the weekends. And unfortunately, we're in a business where, you know, sometimes emergencies come up late at night or over the weekends. So I find the whole concept interesting. I'm not necessarily convinced that there are going to be a ton of law firms that are going to be hurrying up to follow suit here. I'm wondering to what extent it was something very unique to, to slaughter that was going on here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I've, I'm a child of big law. I've been in big law for 28 years now. And 
I've never seen anything like this. I've emailed with people over the weekends late at night and, you know, usually I get a response in a timely fashion. I call them when it's an emergency, but I, I, it is very, very rare that I call them. So I don't find anything necessarily objectionable. I find it interesting that they felt the need to do this. Um, would love to hear from Catherine what her thoughts are on it and what, what triggered this. Yeah. Catherine, you uncovered this memo. So we gotta, we gotta get you in, but like, <laughs> Again, I chuckle at the term code because uh, I think they, they called it a code because you actually need to hire like a World War II era code breaker to figure out what the hell the message is here. But uh, <laughs> what, what's going on with this? Well, at, at Above the Law, we've covered the legal industry for something like 15 years. And we actually have a tag that was very popular about five or six years ago. Is check yo emails because people were constantly getting in trouble for not checking their emails enough. And when we found this memo, it was almost the anti-check your emails. Um, but I think that, I mean, I think that the firm had its heart, if a firm has a heart in the right place. Although I certainly think that the caveats are pretty, pretty large uh, and, and potentially undo it. I think that as we're coming out of COVID and folks working from home and even in the sort of new normal, folks are working from home more frequently, certainly than they did you know, post pre 2020. So I, and people are, have a hard time oftentimes creating these boundaries and instead find themselves checking their emails constantly and in a state of almost anxiety because they are constantly working. There is no, there's no time to get away from the office when you're working on your couch. And then you also sit on your couch to watch stranger things. Uh, and I think that that sort of blurring of the lines is what the firm is trying to address. Um, I think it was intended, well, I don't know what, what it'll do, but I think it was intended to uh, help associates create those lines for themselves, especially the younger associates who only have worked in this sort of crazy COVID life. Uh, and to, to say, you know, it's okay if you only check your emails a couple of times over the weekend, not zero, <laughs> but also not every 20 minutes. That's that's perhaps a bridge too far. And as much as the, but always be available for a call uh, is undoes a lot of the freedom that you think you might be getting from this. It's nice that there is some sort of a, a, a line that they draw that says, if a partner really wants you, they're going to call you. Do not decline the call just because it's Sunday and you're at your kid's birthday party. You have to answer that call. You don't have you know perfect freedom, but you also didn't have to check it every 20 minutes just because you were worried that you might miss something. Uh, and I think that that sort of anxiety is something we're seeing a lot in the legal profession. The legal profession's not great on a lot of mental health issues. And I think anytime a firm, even if it's not perfect, even if there are all these sort of large carve-outs, is making a step towards recognizing the issues that exist in the, you know, for associates and in the industry. Uh, I, I'm grateful for it, even though I don't, I don't I think you're right. I don't think we're going to see a ton of these memos. Um, but not after, not after you, <laughs> after you uh, unveil this one, but, but John, <laughs> you know, everything Catherine said is true. And I'm sympathetic to all that. I've worked with you before. I know how quickly you respond to emails. It's like, you know, momentarily what the memo should really say is what we all think, which is, Hey, associate, we want you to answer our emails at all times of the day. We just don't want to say that. We don't want you to be upset because we think that. But we all think that. We all want that. All of us act that way. Otherwise, I would submit we wouldn't be as successful as we all are. It's hard to be successful in a service-oriented business 
if you're a nine to five person. And the world is just not nine to five. So here's my new code. Answer my emails, whatever I send them, but just, I'm not going to be the one who says, who says that. Yeah, I mean, we all know the law is a jealous mistress, right? It doesn't want some of your time. It wants all of your time. And I, Rich, as you, Tina, and we, and Catherine, we all do, Joe, it's, it's on demand for the client, how to please the customer, the client. Okay. And you're in a service business. If you don't do it, somebody right next door is going to do it. And so that's always been my mindset mantra. And I think for people on this call that are successful, I think that's sort of ingrained in our DNA. So Joe, have um, you ever ordered a room service Sunday at 2 a.m.? That's my question. <laughs> Can't say I have. I, I don't think I've ever even ordered room service. <laughs> or a Sunday for that matter. <laughs> uh, if you haven't noticed, if you're listening, you probably haven't noticed, but if you're watching, you probably have. They were recording on Halloween, and there's only a handful of hours left for anyone 18 or younger to stay out of Chicago's Hyde Park. But that neighborhood, Tina, is trying to change that. Yeah, Joe. So last week, the organization Good Kids Mad City filed a lawsuit against the city of Chicago to try to get a reprieve from the city's Halloween curfew. The organization has young members who want to cop watch and peacekeep in Hyde Park, which is what they do every year. And what that all means is they like to observe police activity to try to de-escalate and discourage police misconduct. As Joe mentioned, the city has a curfew. Those under 18 can't be on the streets after 10 p.m. And the lawsuit was filed because the organization was concerned that officers may arrest and harass its members during their event if they stay out past the curfew and seeks a TRO and an injunction to prevent the police from enforcing the curfew against the group. The lawsuit also asks that the police department inform all of the officers during their roll call um, to just let them know that they're prohibited from enforcing the curfew. So Mayor Lightfoot commented on this last week and said that the ordinance already gives a carve out to group members to do what they want to do as long as they return home immediately after the event. Usually the carve outs are granted if the youth is able to show some kind of evidence of their attendance at an event like a ticket stub or a wristband. Police Superintendent David Brown also seemed pretty optimistic last week when asked about this and said that the police department is trying to collaborate with more groups and city departments this year and is deploying a lot more officers in all neighborhoods and on the CTA. That being said, there were still dozens of people who were killed and injured across the country this Halloween weekend. And as all of our listeners know, there was a horrible stampede in Seoul on Saturday, which left more than 150 people dead and many dozens injured. So no matter how you slice it, Rich, it was still a very deadly weekend for Halloween. Yeah, I mean, Halloween's always, you know, up there with New Year's Eve and some other holidays. Uh, in the ones that induce the most violence. Um, we're obviously dealing with a crisis uh, in violence in many of our cities, including Chicago. So, 
know, I support the curfew. Um, of course, there are exceptions that should be made on some occasions. You know, I'm not so sure that having kids out uh, after 10 p.m., which is the curfew time to observe police and ensure that police are acting accordingly is the best idea. I think that might, you know, actually add to increase rather than mitigate uh, some problems. But, you know, I think the mayor is trying. I think the police are trying a little bit to see what works. Um, the counter to having curfews is that it curtails the ability of people to move freely about the city and to enjoy holidays like Halloween. But, you know, your enjoyment of your holiday stops when my personal safety ends. So there's that conflict there. Uh, uh, John, what are your thoughts on, on this lawsuit? You know, this is this is obviously a, a balancing act, right? Um, obviously, there's been a proliferation in many, all big cities of crime, violence. Um, Halloween, as we all know, like New Year's Eve, as Rich indicated, you know, uh, people, uh, they get excitable. Um, it's fun. Um, so, um, you know, I think curfews are really there to, to protect the environment and to sort of maintain some order and, and semblance of, of, you know, a non-chaotic type atmosphere. I think this is a, I think this is a lawsuit that because of the times that we're in may have some merit. Um, I think that, um, you know, uh, the, the, this violence is, is out of control. It needs to be curtailed. And if this is a, a method in order to do that, I think they may get the benefit of the doubt here. What's the only thing scarier than interest rates these days? How about <laughs> buying a house that's haunted, Rich? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. I think interest rates are up to, what, 7%, which is scary for sure, terrifying. Um, Disclosure laws vary from state to state about what you need to disclose about a haunted house. Uh, if your house is haunted and bedeviled by ghouls, goblins, poltergeists, uh, things that go bump in the night, then many states require you to disclose paranormal activity. Tina, states like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Minnesota. Um, in New Jersey, for example, a seller must truthfully tell a buyer if their property comes with departed roommates, but only if asked. So it's important as part of your home buying checklist, not only to ask if there's been any flood damage or how old the roof is, but hey, has a goblin ever knocked on your door or has a ghoul ever awoken you at night? Uh, there's actually a Ghostbusters case, commonly known as the Ghostbusters ruling in New York in 1991, in which Tina, a buyer sued the seller and the realtor for failing to disclose the house's ghostly reputation. Uh, this is a house that had a lot of media attention. The court found that the uh, it did not find the disclosure fraudulent, but it did say that um, it you, you could have uh, held against the sellers for certain disclosures on the checklist. So listen, if you've got a house that's haunted, Tina, uh, my advice is get rid of it. Get rid of it quickly. I'm watching. For example, The Watcher, I don't know how many of you are watching The Watcher on Netflix. I think it's the number one show on Netflix. And, you know, they're sticking it out. They have a discussion about whether we should stay. Like, it's the old Eddie Murphy skit when he talks about the Amityville Horror, right? It's like, oh, this is a great house. Get out. Let's go. We're going. As soon as I hear, no matter how many square footage, no matter how great the hot tub is, if I hear someone say, get out, I'm moving on. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I agree with you, Rich. I mean, I think that as a general matter, the disclosure laws are out there to try to level the playing field when it comes to knowledge about certain things going on with property. And so I'm generally supportive of more disclosure rather than trying to hide the ball and then have something material going on with the property. And, you know, there are some people who believe in paranormal activity. There are some people who don't. But at the end of the day, if there are things going on at the house where anybody can see it, feel it, whatever the case may be, then I think there should be disclosure. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, sometimes when you disclose these sorts of things, people don't go running the other way. If anything, they think it's fantastic and that it increases the property value. So you may have a bunch of people, you know, you'll have a, a ton of people running out and you'll have some people running in because they think that it actually increases the value. Yeah, Catherine, maybe it's a good, uh, you know, deal making point. Well, you know, yes, there was a family that got butchered by the, you know, by the dad in the house, but maybe that's worth, you know, 10% off. Maybe three ghosts are worth even more. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting, but also the question of what is verifiable becomes a real sticking point when, when we're starting to think about this. Because even folks who believe in the paranormal, I think, will admit that some people are more sensitive than others and some people feel and see and observe more than others. So, you know, if you're in a disclosure law state and your wife sees it, but you don't uh, or your kids uh, talk to the corner in a strange and upsetting way, but you've never seen anything. Where exactly is that line of disclosure when it's when it's a phenomenon by the that by its definition almost can't be verified. <laughs> if, if we knew what it was, <laughs> we would talk about whether or not it was actually the mold and that that you definitely have to disclose or whether there is some foundational problem that's causing that rocking at the night that you definitely have to disclose because those are verifiable. And, and I think that, of course, in you know, that's kind of at, at odds to what you're saying, you know, like when you when your house starts saying get out, leave, but then who's gonna buy it? <laughs> and uh maybe on Halloween's a great time to put it on the market though. Tina, you recently renovated or still in the process of renovating a, an older uh property, a beautiful, nice house where you live. But uh besides David Sussler, how many ghosts are roaming the hallways of Casa Sus Martini? Very funny. Um, none that I'm aware of, but what you may or may not remember, Rich, is that it has those Amityville horror windows on the third floor. Nice. Yeah. Oh. So, ooh. <laughs> ooh. I so look say, out. Maybe it'll that? come out today. Who knows? Yeah. Who is that other person uh, behind you right now? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. It's time to move on to Rich Lenkov's favorite topic of his favorite segment of his favorite episode of Legal Face Off. Rich, just get to it. It's the bizarre Halloween lawsuits. The yearly ritual. I mean, I think we do what? We do Christmas, Tina. We do Halloween. Most of the major. I'm waiting for like a. Fourth of July? There isn't a good like Sukkot uh, uh, bizarre lawsuit, but maybe we'll develop one for next, next holiday. But uh, all being said, we've got some amazing. Halloween themed lawsuits. They all, Tina, John, Catherine, Joe, they all come down to one arcane, very intricate legal theory. Uh, I'll try to break it down in layman's terms. Stop doing stupid things, right? <laughs> so the one guy uh, was dressed in a, a lamb costume, right, in Michigan and was gluing uh, cotton 
cotton all over his body. And someone next to him lit a cigarette. And lo and behold, this person lit on fire. Actually convinced a jury to award them half a million dollars. And also uh, uh, sued Johnson & Johnson as part of the lawsuit. Now, thankfully, Johnson & Johnson, not because I represent them, because, I don't know, I have some common sense, uh, took the case up on appeal, and the court ruled uh, in favor of Johnson & Johnson. It took a while. That was one lawsuit that could probably been avoid, have been avoided by some common sense. Another one, Tina, is the inevitable haunted house lawsuit. We've covered dozens of these in the past. But let me think. I'm going to go to a haunted house and uh, let me think. Well, I might be scared. And in being scared, I might fall and get injured. That's part of the deal, right? There was one lawsuit uh, where a guy was thought he was done with the haunted house. And uh, as there often is, there's one final scare. In this case, there was a guy in California, San Diego, leaving the haunted house, and a guy with a chainsaw or fake chainsaw bolted out, scared him, fell, injured his wrist. He sued. Court, the case made it all the way to the Court of Appeals, so they finally ruled that, hey, um, you paid for a haunted house. You wanted to be scared. We delivered on behalf of the defendant. We delivered on what we promised. Get the hell out of here. The last one I'll uh, mention is, um, Tina, right up your alley, uh, the, uh, the banana costume right yeah now, i go into every costume store i spend hours there during halloween as you can see and uh, there's lots of banana costumes there's lots of other fruit costumes uh in 2017 rasta impasta which speaking back to our borelli lawsuit was uh sued a number of other companies uh, including kmart and kangaroo manufacturing for selling a banana costume that they said was infringing on their own now, I looked at the loss. I looked at the picture. It's a banana. How many different ways are there to make a banana, Tina? But the court actually found in favor of Rasta and pasta. And they said that this particular banana costume was distinctive. Yeah, that's really tough, Rich. I mean, I didn't drill down on this particular case, but I can tell you cases involving designs of clothing can be really tricky unless there really is something, some element or a series of elements in, in the clothing or garment that are really distinctive that are able to signify source. And so from the pictures I saw, it looked just like a banana, you know, like any other costume. Like if I had a home makeup banana costume, it would probably look a lot like that. But I now I won't because I know that I'd probably get sued, especially as an IP lawyer. So um, but yeah, I know that was pretty crazy. And then you know, I think another sort of advice I'd give to people is common sense. Don't stick things in your eye like those lawsuits about like the contact lenses that change your eye color. Like, why would anybody ever buy those and stick those in their eye? I don't understand. Well, Tina, here's a question for you. Yeah, that's a great lawsuit. John will get on that in a second. But like, here's a question. Why could I buy a Spider-Man costume and walk down the street without fear of Marvel suing me tonight? Was it licensed by Marvel? Well, if it's licensed, that's fairly easy, right? Then I have the right. But let's say it's not licensed. There's hundreds and hundreds of knockoff, you know, Halloween costumes out there that aren't licensed. What what am I risking if I do that tonight? Is is Marvel gonna come after me and slap me with a you know injunction to prevent me from using their IP? I find it hard to believe the enforcement side of that, I think, would be pretty difficult for Marvel. Right. All right, John. We've got a lawsuit that Tina mentioned earlier about uh, a, a state attorney general suing. Again, you can't make these defendant names up. Gotcha costume rental. You know what my defense would be? We're called gotcha. 
lay, lay off. We gotcha. We gotcha to stick, you know, colored contacts into your eyes. What do you expect would happen? But uh, these attorney generals alleged that they didn't fit properly. They could scratch the cornea, cause infection. Um, but again, it's like when you're sticking something colored into your eyes, do you really expect them to be of uh, of quality? That these are quality medical devices? Yeah, you know, I mean, it. it you you read, you know, you read some of, all of these lawsuits, and you wonder, you know, what are people thinking? But the point is, is that there's a lot of people that aren't thinking. Um, thank and, God. Thank you know, God. Thank God. Um, and the attorney general, you know, if it has anything to do with protection of the citizenry, um, they're going to bring an action to try to, you know, protect and prevent. And uh, it just seems like common sense, you know, sticking things in your eyes or anything like that is, uh, you know, pretty extraordinary. And um, but, you know, you see you see now the many attorney generals taking a real strong position on, you know, some things years ago they wouldn't even look at. So it's, it's interesting the trend and where that is in today's world. Catherine, last word on this. Has Above the Law uncovered any other wacky, interesting, scary Halloween lawsuits, or, or are these some of the best ones? Uh, the, these, are some, these are some of the good ones uh, that we have here. And I think the thing to remember is, People lose their minds a little bit on Halloween and most holidays. But, you know, what What are you thinking when you put a colored thing in your eye? You're thinking that it looks cute. You're thinking, what are you thinking when you're gluing cotton balls to your to your costume? So you look like Mary and, and her little lamb. You're thinking that it's going to be a really fun night. And uh, I, I guess it's just a reminder that as cute as the Instagram pictures may be, there could be much larger consequences. Speaking of people losing their minds, I believe Rich is in his final wardrobe change. So if we want to take that, <laughs> oh, okay. Terrifying. <laughs> all right, let's go around the room. Favorite horror movies of all time. Let's go. <laughs> we're, do, we're doing this again. Favorite horror movies of all time. Who do, who oh, do you want to start? We did it last time, did we? I think we did it like last week. Yeah, I think we did too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm almost choking from the. Trump mask. <laughs> Me sprinting to my lair. <laughs> all right, we did favorite horror movies, favorite horror characters of all time for Halloween. Or maybe how about this? Your favorite Halloween costume that you've ever worn at any point in your life. Let's start with you, Catherine. Um, I think my favorite Halloween Halloween costume is the Evil Queen, uh, Disney character. I, I am a, a bit of a Disney fan, but it, you know, you get the evil side, so you get the best of both worlds. You get to have your fun Disney moments, uh, but still be a little evil on the holiday. Like it. Joe? Got to go back to my college days. It's a tie between I was Cameron Fry from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, another time I was, wow, it's escaping my mind already. Uh, Ace Ventura. Joe, does your employer, the Blackhawks, know that you wore a Red Wing sweater? So that that was the thing. I could not find a Red Wing sweater. I uh, I wore the the green shirt with the little um, paramedic symbol he had. I got suspenders and khakis. I had my hair cut just like him. People were telling me in college I already looked like him too. So it just kind of fit the mold. But uh, yeah, couldn't find a Gordy Howe sweater that that Halloween. John, well, it's a toss up, and I know this is hard to believe because of my current hairline, but I was werewolf. In college, 
And I was also Count Dracula one time. So it's a toss-up. Nice. Tina. So when I was in grade school, I actually dressed up as a witch with like all the makeup and everything. I mean, it took hours to put the makeup on and the warts and all of that. So that was the most effort I ever put into um, a Halloween costume. And then you asked for favorite. You realize you're dressed as a witch tonight. Today, Yeah, I know, but I don't have the green makeup in case you haven't noticed. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is her Halloween costume. Yeah. And then my favorite creep of all time from horror movies, I think, is probably Michael Myers from Halloween. The OG. Can't go wrong. So my favorite, I like to do topical uh, costumes every year, this year being uh, excluded. But one, you remember that uh, I had some really awful ones like uh, controversial. Remember that dentist who killed that lion? That's why I had the lion. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That's why I was wearing the lion one, because I was dressed as that dentist who killed the poor lion. I went as uh, Kaepernick one year. Um, I also went as Adrian Peterson. Joe, you'd appreciate that. I had a a little baby and a and a stick. That was yeah, yeah. I, I totally appreciate uh, child abusing. Yes, thank you, Rich. So. <laughs> yeah, I got to get some of this line made out of You 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 kind of you kind of look like Doc Brown from Back to the Future right now. Yeah, Great Scott Marty. You do. All right. On that note, we're going to conclude our Halloween episode of The Legal Face-Off. Big thanks to Catherine and John for joining us here on The Legal Grab Bag and also our earlier guests of Sean Patrick Griffin, Professor Evan Burnick, and Nakia Crossley. Another big thanks to our producers who make this whole thing possible, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. Yvonne also with a great Parks and Rec reference that she caught on that I uh, mentioned earlier. Don't forget to like, oh boy, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share The Legal Face-Off podcast. Please give us five stars for Tina Martini, for Rich Lenkov and his many other identities today. I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Happy Halloween, everybody. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.